A quick heads up before we get started. This episode contains a mention of suicide. Please take care while listening. The first time I heard from David Kaczynski was in September 2019. It was a short email. Gracious and thoughtful, but disappointing. Thanks for reaching out, he wrote. I'm mostly seeking peace of mind now after a couple decades devoted to public advocacy. Your project sounds like a worthy one, but I've promised myself to learn how to say no in order to claim the space I need for reflection and calm. Best of luck to you. I wanted to ask you about the pronunciation of your last name. There, there, there are a couple people who have insisted to me that it's pronounced Kaczynski. Yeah, my parents taught us that the original pronunciation was Kaczynski. And um, sometimes, oddly enough, I'll, I'll, people will ask me what my name is, and I'll say David, and they say, David what? And I'll say Kaczynski, <laughs> just so that um, maybe to maintain a little privacy. I still don't quite know why David said yes. Over the year and a half since we first spoke, David would tell me something still felt unfinished. For decades, he and Ted were something akin to best friends, traveling together, exchanging hundreds of letters, debating ideas, making sense of their childhoods, even sharing elaborate analyses of their dreams. But David always felt there was part of Ted that he couldn't understand. And over the years, family members, acquaintances, investigators, and anyone else looking for answers would ask the same question David had asked his mother as a kid. This is Project Unibomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Eric Benson. Episode 2, What's Wrong with Ted? David is 72 years old now. He lives most of the year in a small cabin. It's in the desert, not in the mountains like Ted's. And David doesn't live alone. He's there with his wife, Linda, a retired philosophy professor. David and I have talked about a lot of things over the year and a half since we first spoke. And he did end up going into the Unabomber saga. Because it's inseparable from everything else in David's life. He was born in 1949. And when he talks about his early years... It sounds a little like a sitcom about a 1950s working-class family. Their dad, Theodore Kaczynski Sr., went by the nickname Turk. He was a friendly, backslapping kind of guy who made sausages at their family-owned deli. Their mom, Wanda, was the sweet-as-pie homemaker, doting over her two sons. Every Saturday night, they all gathered on the living room couch to watch Gunsmoke. But David says it was clear early on that there was one exceptional part of their otherwise more or less average family. Ted, the family prodigy. He could do anything. Ted would compose. He loved um, Baroque music, like Vivaldi and Bach. And he would then begin to compose, you know, little duets for us to play together. He often composed those on uh, Dad's piano. Later on, David would write that his question growing up was, is Ted going to be the next Einstein or the next Bach? This wasn't just a kid idolizing his older brother. Ted skipped two grades, scored over 160 on an IQ test, graduated high school at the age of 16. Ted's bedroom was in the attic, and he spent a lot of time up there alone. But every so often, he'd invite David in. And I love those times. I mean, 
My brother, in some ways, was my role model, my hero. My parents had put um, education and intelligence up on a pedestal, and Ted embodied that ideal for me. I mean, gosh, going to Harvard at 16, being a National Merit Scholar, being so gifted, the smartest kid in our school, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to be like Ted. Uh, though he didn't spend a lot of time with people, the notion that he wanted to spend time with me, enjoyed spending time with me, was wonderful. By that point, pretty much everyone figured Ted was off to do great things. There was Harvard, then graduate school in mathematics at the University of Michigan, where he was given an award for the best PhD dissertation of the year. He got a teaching position at the University of California at Berkeley, published in major journals. In the summer of 1968, David was in school at Columbia. Ted had just finished his first year at Berkeley. The brothers drove up together to the remote and rugged Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Then Ted decided their time together needed to get even more rugged. He said to me, let's just live off the land for the next few days. Like, just eat berries and so forth. And um, I said, yeah, let's try to see if we could do that. Well, later in the day, I got really, really hungry. <laughs> and I went to the car and I opened up a box of cookies. I started eating the cookies and Ted confronted me and said, but you had agreed that we weren't going to eat commercial food. We were going to live off the land. And I said, well, I got hungry and... I'm sorry, you know, you don't have to eat it, but I'm hungry. And he got mad at me, and he drove off. Ted came back the next day, apologized, but it didn't sit well with David. There was some sense in which, you know, I felt a little bit like my brother liked me to the extent that I was like him. In his second year at Berkeley, Ted got promoted to assistant professor, a tenure-track job. And then in June 1969, less than two years after he arrived there, Ted quit. He sent his parents a letter trying to explain. I've decided to quit my job. I've decided to um, try to find a home in wild nature because uh, I feel technology is a real threat and I want to get as far away from it as possible. He sent David a letter, too. He was looking for some land, up, really wild land up in Canada. And um, I was still in college at the time. And he wrote to me and said, hey, would you like to join me this summer as I go looking for land? And so, um, yeah, we spent a, a long couple of months, maybe at least six weeks together up in British Columbia, got all the way up to the Yukon, did lots of hiking, fishing together. For the most part, it was nice. Ted teaching David outdoor skills, talking to him about big ideas, David every so often chancing an opinion of his own. But David also saw that his brother seemed to be struggling, wrestling with something he wouldn't talk about. We were camped out and kind of by ourselves. And I remember over the campfire in the morning, I started talking and Ted was totally shut down. Like he, he didn't speak. It was like he was almost in a catatonic state. I didn't, I didn't know what to think. I remember going off and taking a walk and coming back, and, and maybe it was an hour later, Ted was had come out of it, I suppose. And I said, uh, Ted, Ted, 
how come you didn't answer me before? How come you didn't talk to me this morning? And he said, well, I was thinking I really needed to think. On the trip, Ted talked a lot about technology, particularly a book he'd recently read called The Technological Society by a French philosopher named Jacques Ellul. It was scholarly, dense, but also a dire warning to humanity. Ellul said that technology was now becoming so powerful, so omnipresent, that the relationship between humans and their tools had been flipped. Ellul wrote that technology was no longer face-to-face with man. It progressively absorbs him. It wasn't a crazy idea, even in the late 60s. That was the summer of the moon landing. Television was creating a truly mass culture as never before. The ARPANET, the first mass network of computers, was switched on that year. And plenty of smart people thought overpopulation and all the technology-fueled consumption that came with it was going to decimate humanity. In 1967, Esquire magazine ran a piece warning of the perils of runaway growth, titled, The Human Race Has Maybe 35 Years Left. Not long after he left Berkeley, Ted wrote a 23-page essay outlining what he saw as the perils of technological progress. He was largely worried about behavior modification, from genetic engineering, mass media, and scientists inserting electrodes and chemitrodes into human brains to control human emotions. And he had a solution. Stop funding scientific research. He started sending his essay around, looking to stoke a movement. He even outlined his concerns in a letter to one of his senators, Mike Mansfield, then the majority leader of the U.S. Senate. And Mansfield wrote Ted back, told him his views were, quote, well-developed and worthy of every consideration. Then Mansfield forwarded Ted's letter to Dr. Bertram Brown, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, to get his scientific opinion on Ted's ideas. Brown wrote back, Behavior control in some form or another is the basis of which any organized society rests. In the copy of this letter in the Michigan archive, Ted circled that sentence and wrote in the margins, So fuck organized society. Ted and David returned to the U.S. at the end of the summer of 1969. David went back to Columbia for his senior year. Ted moved in with his parents, an unemployed math professor, looking for somewhere, anywhere to go. When David finished up at Columbia the next spring, he took a cross-country road trip with some friends. He found a job in Great Falls, Montana, working at a smelting plant. I didn't have a telephone, but uh, I was a little averse to technology myself, perhaps, or maybe wanting to isolate. But um, my landlord came to me and said, your father's on the line. Um, He wants to talk to you. He says it's urgent. So um, I went to my landlord's apartment and got on the phone with dad. And dad said, have you seen Ted? Ted has left. Ted hadn't let anyone know where he was going, but he had left a note. It was vague, reflective. And in this note, he said, don't feel bad. You've been good parents. Don't ever think you're to blame. But I I need to go. And my father and mother were concerned that it sounded like a suicide note. 
So they said, well, please let us know. If you hear anything from Ted, let us know right away because we're really worried. He didn't tell us he was going. He's just gone. And there's this note. And uh, a couple days later, early in the morning, there's a knock on my door. I open the door and lo and behold, there's my brother, Ted. And I says, oh, Ted, you're okay. That's great. Mom and Dad are really worried about you. And uh, how come you left? And he said, I couldn't stay there anymore. And then he says, look, I've got an idea for you. Do you want to go in on a piece of land together? It wasn't long before Ted found that land, up a shady gulch in the mountains, in the tiny gold mining town of Lincoln, Montana, just west of the Continental Divide. David and Ted bought it together, going in 50-50. There, under towering lodgepole pines, Ted would live off the land, be the individual who was free from technological society. It's just 2.4 acres, but it was a beautiful piece of land up in the mountains with a, a stream on the border of the property. Ted built his cabin there. It was tiny, 10 feet by 12 feet, with no running water, no electricity. The toilet was a bucket. He read books on survival skills. He dug a root cellar, planted a garden. It was what he was looking for. Going into the woods, identifying wild edible plants, taking them back to eat. He called it one of the most fulfilling activities that I know. Sometimes he'd set off from the cabin to explore, going deeper into the wilderness. His favorite place was a high plateau he found, a two-day trek from Lincoln. To get there, he would hike through forests, scale the steep walls of ravines, admire cascading waterfalls, and then arrive. It felt like a secret, a place out of time. Rolling grasslands, vast skies, remote, isolated, free. Standing there, he felt like part of prehistory, far, far away from the world he had chosen to leave. Later, Ted would talk about one of the most freeing parts of living in the woods. He wasn't worried about the future. He didn't fear death. If he was happy in the moment, that was all he needed. To him, that life, it was everything civilization was not. But he wasn't at peace. A year after he moved to Lincoln on Christmas 1972, he wrote the following in his journal. About a year and a half ago, I planned to murder a scientist as a means of revenge against organized society in general and the technological establishment in particular. Unfortunately, I chickened out. I couldn't work the nerve to do it. This is where the Ted Kaczynski we know begins to come into focus. The hermit who swears off society, then masterminds a one-man terrorism campaign from his cabin. But it took him a while to get there. So many things had to add up in just the right way. Other than David, maybe the person who spent the most time thinking about Ted is the FBI behavioral analyst Kathy Puckett, the agent who argued that the Washington Post should publish the manifesto because someone might recognize the writing. In the closing months of the investigation, Kathy was charged with trying to understand as much as she could about Ted by conducting extensive interviews with David. And once Ted was arrested, Kathy was assigned to read the 40,000 pages of Ted's writing that was found in the cabin. And what Kathy found is that the incidents and thoughts and traumas that defined Ted's life, they started not long after he was born. They treated him as if he was a damaged person. And this all went back to when he was an infant, 
I remember asking mom one time, you know, what's wrong with Ted? Why does he avoid people? Why does he not like people? And that's when mom told me the story that my brother had been uh, hospitalized for, I think, 10 days or so as a nine-month-old infant. I used to pick him up out of the crib. That's Wanda Kaczynski talking about this incident on 60 Minutes with the show's longtime lead reporter, Mike Wallace. He would be bouncing around and he would nuzzle his head in my neck and chortle and gurgle and pull my hair. And he was a bundle of joy. But then baby Ted broke out in red splotches that spread across his body. Wanda took him to the hospital. At that time, parents weren't allowed to be at their children's bedside day and night. When I finally came back to take him home, what they handed to me was not this bouncing, joyous baby, but a little rag doll that didn't look at me, that was slumped over, was completely limp. Wanda, back in those days, that happened to a lot of youngsters, I mean, who, whose parents couldn't see them in, in a hospital, just as with Ted, mm -hmm. and they did not become sociopaths, if you will. Right. But can you judge one child by another? Mom always felt that Ted had a fear of, uh, had some trust issues because of, of that experience, and in addition, a fear of abandonment. The hospital story became a major topic of discussion among the Kaczynski family as Ted grew more troubled and angry over the years. And Ted hated it. The hospital experience that mother always likes to dredge up is very convenient for them because it's something that was beyond their control, he wrote in a letter to David in 1986. In Ted's telling, his problems began when he was a preteen and skipped sixth grade. That turned him into, quote, practically a social cripple. He was awkward and alone, a sitting duck for middle school bullies. And so he turned his anger outward. He started bridling against what he called an Ant Hill Society when he was just 14. This sounds like a lot of angsty teenagers, but with Ted, it went further. After reading a book about cavemen, he wrote he suddenly realized that what I wanted was not just to read another book on cavemen, I wanted to really live like a caveman. But he didn't. He kept going to high school in suburban Chicago, and things didn't get much better there. By the time he graduated at age 16, Ted felt that, in the eyes of the world, I was some kind of sickie. Ted was very uh, dismissive of the intelligence of his family and anybody else. And so they were used to him being very disparaging. At home, David saw his parents as nurturing and supportive. And to some extent, Ted did too. At one point, he described them as generous and unselfish toward me. But as he got older, he fought with them more and more and showed an instinct for cruelty. They were used to him being uh, curt and not responding. Uh, and one night around the dinner table, Wanda came to the table with uh, a casserole that she had just taken out of the oven. And Ted jumped up and went over to her and smiled at her, which was unusual anyway, and pulled the chair out for her. And... Uh, David remembered everybody watching this kind of amazed, like, oh, my God, all of a sudden, this, you know, Ted is being chivalrous. And his mother looked at him and started to sit down, and he pulled the chair out from under her. 
And she fell down, and the casserole was blazing hot, and she was screaming, and her father was yelling, and Ted just laughed and went upstairs. Arguments would often follow. Ted would call Wanda a fat pig, and his parents, particularly Turk, would accuse him of being emotionally disturbed and a creep. Sometimes his father would say that Ted was going to end up just like a coworker of his who'd been institutionalized for mental illness. Ted felt that his parents were always pathologizing his anger at them, blaming it on something fundamentally wrong with him. Those were the criticisms that continued to hurt him most deeply. He would later write that ever since he was a teen, he'd been acutely sensitive to any comment that seemed to reflect negatively on my personality, my psychology, or my social adjustment. Ted's misery didn't let up a whole lot once he got to Harvard. He wrote that it was snobby and elitist, hard to think he didn't have a point, and that he was, by his own account, a sloppy dresser and a loner. He sensed correctly that at least some of his fellow students regarded him as some kind of weirdo. As a Harvard sophomore, he wrote, I do not like the present condition of the social world. It imposes too many restrictions on the individual. Also, most people seem to follow the group like sheep. So he spent a lot of time alone, thinking about a way out. He studied maps, looking for uninhabited islands, but concluded they were too small and too barren to live on. He considered going on a single-handed ocean voyage. This is Monday evening, March 14, 1960. Dyad number 12 is about to begin between Mr. Shea and Mr. Kaczynski. We are now testing for the level of the hum. There was also something else that happened to Ted at Harvard that has taken on an outsized significance in the Unabomber origin story. For three years, he was a subject in a notorious psychological experiment. Please begin your discussion when you hear the buzzer sound. All right? Excuse me a second. Do you think... We ought to decide how we're going to go about it, or? I suppose it's supposed to be a spontaneous discussion. That's Ted you're hearing there, during the experiment. It was overseen by a famous researcher named Henry Murray. Murray had worked for the Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor to the CIA, developing psychological screening tests during World War II. And for years, there's been suspicion that Murray's Harvard study was part of the CIA's notorious Project MKUltra, which used electroshock torture and high doses of LSD on largely unwitting subjects. Some people who've looked at Kaczynski's life and this experiment have seen it as the moment when an alienated young man transformed into a nascent killer. That if not for the Murray experiment, Kaczynski would never have been angry and broken enough to send out bombs. I gotta say, I see the appeal, thinking of the young Unabomber as a CIA mind control victim, that like Dr. Frankenstein, we created our own monster. But that version of the story relies on some big assumptions about how Ted became Ted, and some myths about what was really going on at Harvard. As Ted describes it, he got a flyer in the mail his sophomore year, inviting him to take a psychological test. The pay was $5. Murray was studying personality development, tracking groups of Harvard men who'd either tested high or low on scales of social alienation. The commitment wasn't small. Three years, two hours a week, much of it filling out questionnaires and responding to essay prompts. Does life have any inherent meaning or purpose? 
Is it more natural for man to be alone or in communication with other people? Can the individual change the society he lives in? It was far from MKUltra-style human experimentation. There was at least one in-person session, though, that seemed to cross an ethical line. It was a one-on-one interrogation called the dyad. Ted had entered a small room. Electrodes were placed on his arms and chest to monitor stress levels. A camera filmed the proceedings through a one-way mirror. I, I ought to warn you before I start this that I was not, I did not have a very favorable impression of you as a result of reading your philosophy. But let me just tick off a few preliminaries, then we'll get into what I really didn't like. Ted thought he was there for a chat. Instead, one of Murray's graduate student interrogators had been ordered to berate him. That's the interrogator pushing Ted around. He'd reviewed a statement Ted had written about his personal philosophy, then tore it to shreds. The interrogator called Ted's thoughts about the relationship between the individual and society insipid. He made one flat statement that the individual owes nothing to society. And this is an insipid remark because... uh, One thing I did get, the interrogator tells Ted, was the fact that although you did a lot of breastfeeding, a la Tarzan, about strength and individuality, I've sensed an overriding sense of, um, I don't know really whether to call it weakness or fear. He even makes fun of the way Ted looks. On this uh, avoiding of of society or this uh, society is is a bad thing, is that why you're trying to grow that beard? No. I mean, are you conforming with the non-conformist? No, I'm not conforming with the non-conformist. Well, all the if I were all conforming the non-conformist, with the non-conformist, the non-conformist, if I were conforming non-conformist, I mean, really, this isn't really a beard yet. You're darn right it's not. If this is the experiment that turned the young, troubled Ted Kaczynski into a mad bomber, I definitely can't hear it in the tape. That's the thing that's remarkable about it. Ted doesn't seem shaken at all. This interrogator is berating him, basically calling him weak and stupid. And Ted really holds his own. When the interrogator reads his own philosophical statement, Ted goes on the counterattack. If you're going to apply labels, I'll apply labels, Ted says in the interrogation. I don't think your philosophy is anything but a lot of wishful thinking. I think the reason, one of the reasons you attack my philosophy so vigorously is because you don't want to believe it. And in your, I think the way you laugh is an indication of that, too. Ted once called this incident severe psychological harassment. But this idea that it transformed his life, made him who he became, he doesn't buy it. As recently as 2017, he wrote he thinks the traumatic effect of the Murray study on him has been wildly, wildly exaggerated. On this point, Kathy Puckett agrees with Ted. What made Ted Ted, we haven't really found it yet. But I don't think the Murray experiment had much to do with it. You haven't really criticized my views, except in that you've applied labels. You have not analyzed them in any way and attacked them logically. Well, there isn't too much to analyze, Mr. Kaczynski. It's a lot of garbage. If that's another label, we'll make the most of it. But that's just about right. But David thinks the Murray experiment must have had some impact. I remember he was back home from college, and he said to me, You know, most really smart people, you know, they have a sadistic streak about them. And that sort of seems strange to me, like intelligence goes with cruelty. When Ted left his job and moved to his cabin in the mountains, he kept finding he couldn't fully escape the horrors of modern society. There in the woods in Montana, 
Ted was constantly hearing the mechanical buzz and hum and whirl of chainsaws and motorcycles and airplanes. Where the hell can I go where neither Forest Service or anybody else will come to pester me, he wrote in his journal a year after moving to Montana. This feeling of not having anywhere where one can get real seclusion is very depressing. Soon, Ted's depression had turned to violence. In the summer of 1975, he began a campaign of sabotage, pouring sugar into the tank of a mining company vehicle. And then, stringing a wire across a dirt biking trail at neck height in the hopes of killing a motorcyclist. By the spring of 1977, he was breaking into a hunting cabin, slashing the mattresses and sofas. That summer, he went onto a rancher's nearby grazing lands and shot a cow in the head. He specified he was not killing a wild animal. He was killing a, quote, rancher's cow. He wrote in his journals, I think that perhaps I could now kill someone under circumstances where there was very little chance of getting caught. He, he was not, he was not, uh, you know, for all of his compassion for living things in the animal kingdom, he had no regard for people who he thought were technocrats or mindless uh, destroyers of nature. Even more than nature, Ted thought these technocrats were destroying what it meant to be human, eliminating the possibility of being truly free. And he was sure some essential part of his own unhappiness was tied to that. He gloried in being independent, but it also he also was enraged by the fact that he was doing it because he was denied the kind of life that he should have had. So, it, I mean, the way you're describing it, it sounds like in your reading of this, when he's talking about the human race and what's happened to the human race with technology, he's really talking about himself. Exactly. Because he was genuinely um, racked up about it for his whole life about his failure in the social world. Um, he wasn't, it wasn't fair. His parents had pushed him. He, it, it wasn't his fault. It was everybody else's fault. His parents pushed them into this. They wanted him to be their little emblem of superiority and, and achievement in the world. And they were very proud of him, but he took it as something that they were claiming for themselves, not for him. That was Ted's answer to the question, what's wrong with Ted? He was unequivocal about it. If you were looking for a unified theory, it was simple. His parents, Wanda and Turk, were to blame. In March 1974, Wanda sent a couple letters checking in on Ted, making sure he was making it through the winter okay. And Ted wrote back, unleashing his fury on them. I remember he'd been up there in Montana in that little cabin and um, our parents shared with me a letter they were so upset it kind of started out with uh, you know I've been miserable all my life and I've had a lot of time to think about it and why and now I understand why I'm so miserable it's because you mom and dad never loved me the insults creep emotionally disturbed had metastasized in his mind they pushed him too hard he said they treated him like a trophy they loved his achievements, but they didn't love him as an actual human being and son. He swore off contact with them in a letter, told them he never wanted to see them again. Oh my gosh, and mom and dad were just like, they were in tears. They were like, oh 
gosh, how could Ted feel this way? Was it true? Were we bad parents? They were coming to me for some sort of, uh, you know, advice or comfort. And uh, I tried to speak with Ted. I mean, mostly through letters. At first I thought, well, he just lost his temper, you know, especially if you're, it could happen to anybody. You live by yourself, you know, it's a human characteristic. You know, we're unhappy. Sometimes we look for somebody to blame. That's what's going on. But Ted's smarter than that. He knows our parents loved us. And uh, he developed a fixed belief system that our parents had never loved him, that they only valued his intellect and not his feelings. I mean, I, I was really surprised when I heard that letter. And it was the first of several that he sent them over the years uh, that made me realize he had a very, very different experience of mom and dad than I did. And though he swore he'd never speak to them again, Ted was more than happy to accept the $350 a year that Turk and Wanda sent him, money that he used to buy staples like flour, rice, and canned fish, and pay for occasional visits to the doctor and dentist. Wanda sent him care packages, too, which he also accepted, and then used as an occasion to berate his mother further. March 1975. You sent me a Reader's Digest. Look stupid. How many times must I tell you not to send me magazines? November 1975. Please don't send smoked oysters. I don't like smoked oysters. November 1977. If you want to send me a package, you had better keep it down to 4.5 inches width. Permissible items for package? Dried fruit, nuts, cheese. Whatever the source is, however you answer the question, what's wrong with Ted? When you read his writings, the one thing that's clear is his rage is all-encompassing. He's not just mad at Wanda and Turk. He's mad at the whole world. In his memoirs, he writes that as a teenager, he fantasized about becoming a dictator and either rebuilding society so as to guarantee maximum individual autonomy or wiping out the human race by means of an atomic war or some such thing. At Michigan, he, quote, often had fantasies of killing the kind of people whom I hated. He lists government officials, computer scientists, and, quote, the rowdy type of college students who left their piles of beer cans in the Arboretum. He didn't try to actually kill anyone then. But after years of escalating violence in Montana against property and one poor cow, he was ready. In the spring of 1978, after all the letters he sent cutting off contact, Ted decides to move back in with his parents. But before he leaves Montana, he does one last thing. He builds a bomb in a box designed to explode when the lid is opened. He brings it home with him to Chicago, the Unabomber's first bomb. It eventually ends up in the hands of a security guard at Northwestern University. And when he started to open the, the wood box, it triggered it, and it went off in his hands. That's next time on Project Unibom. Project Unibomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by our senior producer, Jonathan Menhivar, and me, I'm Eric Benson. Our producers are Elliot Adler and Melissa Slaughter. Edited by Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprungkaiser. 
Our fact checker is Sarah Ivry. The episode was mixed by Davey Sumner, Jason Richards, Elliot Adler, and Jonathan Menhivar. Studio recording by Brian Standifer at the Texas Monthly Studio. Our artwork is by Guillaume Casasus. Music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Additional music by Eric Phillips and Jeff Baxter. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. If you live in the U.S. and are having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, 800-273-TALK, for free and confidential support. Thanks for listening.